1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. You ever feel like it is? You ever feel like your attempts to share Jesus with someone are just in vain? You ever just look around at the world and think, what are we doing? Well, we're trying here, but don't seem to be making a dent. Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, listen, understand, get this down. Our coming to you was not in vain. This was not wasted time. There are great things happening here. Now, it's remarkable to me to hear Paul say that. Because this is a guy who, here on his second missionary journey, and I'll remind you, he wrote this letter on that journey. From Corinth. They tried to spread the gospel further into Asia. The Spirit wouldn't even let them speak the word in Asia. The Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going north to Bithynia. And so, across the Aegean they go into Europe... They go to Philippi, they go from Philippi to Thessalonica, from Thessalonica to Berea, from Berea down to Athens, from Athens to Corinth, and all the while just getting kicked out, trying to start churches and and being ushered along. I mean, read Acts 16 and 17, the story's right there. And in this earliest of Paul's letters, now he's down in Corinth. And you may recall, and we'll actually see a little more of this in in chapter 3, but he had already from Athens sent Timothy back to Thessalonica just to say, is the church alive there? We had to get out of town so quickly. Did they survive? Is there even a fellowship? And Timothy goes and he comes back to Paul now in Corinth and says, things are good in Thessalonica. There's a church. There is a fellowship. They're hanging in. In fact, they're growing. They're thriving. And yes, they are heavily oppressed. And so Paul begins to saying, look, it was not in vain. Now, you would wonder how could such a pattern as this second missionary journey have really accomplished anything? Because it was pretty much plant and escape, plant and escape, plant and escape. That was the pattern of this mission. I am sure it is not what Paul imagined. Listen, don't imagine ahead of God. And don't make assumptions that it's going to look a certain way. It rarely looks the way we think it's going to look. But God has this marvelous way of working under the surface and working into even the most oppositional places. How could this all work out? Well, we already talked a little bit about that on Sunday, that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So we're not out here running on our own. But Paul now in chapter 2 is going to share another very surprising, cultivating nutrient. Something that along with the power of the Spirit may not have been something I would have chosen to add into this cultivation process of the planting of the church at Thessalonica. And that thing is opposition. Now it's interesting to me because it seems like we've run across this a lot in Scripture. Uh, The use of opposition by God to develop faith. Resistance is a good thing. Because it makes us rely on Him more, and when the Gospel gets planted in spite of opposition, even more of the glory goes to God. When a church grows, and it shouldn't, hallelujah, praise Jesus. Opposition, though we often might pray against it, is something God says, oh no, that's a good tool. 
It's something that Satan thinks is in his arsenal for destruction, but it's in my arsenal for cultivation. And in this second chapter especially, this is what Paul is now going to address, the lush and fertile growth of faith that is seeded in the nutrients of resistance. And it's fascinating to me because it's really what we need, though it's not often what we would pray for. Faith in the fight. You know, hope against hostility. Love when love seems lacking. And we stay with this theme in 1 Thessalonians of both perseverance and expectancy. And when we persevere through opposition and we are expectant for the coming of Jesus, regardless of circumstance, will our faith grow stronger and stronger. Watch this. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Opposition in Philippi, opposition in Thessalonica, it just wasn't any different. They would face the same thing in Berea. Now, it's easy for me to sit up here on my comfortable padded stool with armrests and all, and I can lean back and I can pronounce to you and proclaim to you statements of faith with boldness. And man, when you're into it and I'm hearing amens or seeing heads nod, that, that's easy. I mean, I confess to you, it's not a difficult thing to be bold in the presence of bold believers. But when the tomatoes start to fly, you know, when the opposition begins to mount, or worse, when the threat becomes real, the very first thing to note here in in opposition is a courier's confidence. A courier's confidence, and Paul has it. He said we were made even more bold. It wasn't that this dialed things down. You know, Paul and Silas didn't head back to Antioch with their tails between their legs. No, they became more bold. The more fierce the opposition, the more intense the passion to preach this gospel message. Part of that is simply because Paul couldn't help himself. Man, when the gospel you preach is the truth, and it is, the greater the opposition the greater the confidence. You know the scene at the, at the beautiful gate where Peter and John came walking through and they end up healing the man who was lame there? Who, you know, side note, had probably been there through the entire ministry of Jesus and Jesus hadn't healed him. There was an important moment coming and so Peter and John heal them, heal him, and it causes all this uproar, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Let me read this to you in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. As they, that is the Jewish leaders, observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. See, that's the deal. It's not your education. It's not your scholasticism. It's not your training. It's that you've been with Jesus. And Peter and John had been. And they saw that. It says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they, that is the council, began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
But, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. These were the religious blowhards who thought they had the right to tell these Jewish men, stop teaching in this name. We are your authority. But Peter and John answered and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were either absolutely assured of the truth or they were crazy to go up against this power and authority. But Peter and John did. Why? Because they had been with Jesus. Which is to say, not only had Jesus rubbed off on them, but they had seen the truth. How do you not share what you know to be true? And when opposition comes, a courier gets more confident. When you know the word of truth, and by the way, that's why you're here tonight. To know the word of truth. Because the more you know the word of truth, when opposition and antagonism comes into your life, the bolder you become. It's just a really cool dynamic that that happens. Peter and John's boldness, again, was born of being with Jesus, and it grew by leaps and bounds, even as the lame man would be leaping, so their faith was leaping. Growing in this strength, facing resistance, and it reminds me of what the Hebrew writer says of Jesus, chapter 12, verse 3, Consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think about Jesus. Look to Him. What did He face? And did it cause Him to back down one iota? Not at all. You know, there's something else Jesus said, and I I saw it in a different way this week than I have ever seen it before. In John 16.7, He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now, the context of that and why he says that is, he says, if I don't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So, of course, yes, Jesus leaving allows Jesus then to fill every believer. So that makes sense. But there's something else here. It's to our advantage that He went away because it's no longer Jesus with you. It's no longer Jesus alongside you or fighting for you or big brother standing up in your stead. No, it's Jesus in you. And now you're the one standing. You're the one bold. You're the one perhaps even crucified. Christ in you. As Paul says in the other place, the hope of glory. His letter to Colossae. You've seen the bumper sticker? He, and then it's got the greater sign, and then I... He's greater than I. Should be He's greater than me, but that's okay. He greater than I. I would like to see this in a bumper sticker. Not just He greater than I, He is, but He in me. That's the deal. That's the source of the boldness within us. Christ in me, what do I have to be afraid of? A courier's confidence comes not only of knowing Jesus because we've been around Him, but it comes of knowing He is in me. Peter and John knew that. Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke, they all knew this. He was in them. We don't preach a religious system. We preach a risen Savior. And because He's risen, then He is present. And because He's present, it is Him at work, not me. 
And I think learning to submit to that, to surrender to His Spirit at work in me, is a way of overcoming not all kinds of sin, but all kinds of fear. I become bold in the process. He in me. So, a courier's confidence. Secondly, note this, an apostolic or an apostle's approval. Verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Now, there are other missionaries and that's exactly what it was coming from. In, in Paul's day, in the first century, there were a lot of missionaries. don't know if you knew this, but there were pagan missionaries too. There were guys who went around making their living teaching pagan falsehoods, uh, teaching heathenism. And they would move into town, and, and we saw this in Corinth, they would get paid big, big bucks. And if they weren't being paid big bucks, they actually weren't considered to be legitimate. Here comes Paul refusing to be paid. And that ended up being a problem in Corinth. He had to explain to them, no, I just didn't want to burden you. But these guys would go around and they would do this kind of preaching and this kind of pagan evangelism. And so Paul says in verse 3, ours doesn't come from error, impurity, or by way of deceit, like the rest. That's not our style. Verse 4 he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Oh, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. An apostle's approval. When you know that you have been sent by the authority of Christ, opposition only empowers you. Resistance is futile. When people stand against the message, you don't stop bringing the message because you're not there to please the person. You're there to please the Lord God by speaking His truth. And we know that we have the Father's approval. This is huge. Because many people, and I would suspect many even in the room tonight, have never really known the approval of a father. Perhaps that was something that was lacking in your upbringing, in your life. Something you've longed for or wished for. Either because there wasn't a father in the home or the father who was in the home was so distracted with other things that dad's approval was always longed for, always desired, always hoped for. Listen, in Jesus Christ, you have your daddy's approval. And that to me is, that is so tender. That is so touching. It is so profound. I have the approval of God. I don't have to go looking for it. I have it. He looks at me, His Son, and says, I approve. Why is that? Because I am covered all over with the blood of Jesus. Not because I've earned it, not because I have gained it, not because I'm Mr. Righteous. Even those who pursue righteousness are not Mr. or Miss Righteous. No, but we have our Father's approval because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus in us. So what do I mean an Apostle's approval? You can measure... Approval by opposition. That is, the greater the opposition, the more assured you are of your approval. Well, how does that work? The word approved here is an interesting word. It's dokimadzo. In the Greek, what dokimadzo means is 
proven, not just approved, but proved. In other words, proven and tried as metal by fire that comes out purified. It's that same word, uh, Peter uses it in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, tested, dokimazo, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Paul is talking about. It's what he and Silas had come through when he says, we have been approved by God. You could say we have been proven by God. We have been tested by God. Now the reason the translators don't say tested is in another place the Bible tells us that God does not test anyone. So don't say that we're tested by God. Well, wait a minute. God doesn't test anyone, but Paul says we're tested by God. It's context. Context gives the meaning and the understanding. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. Don't ever say, I've been tempted by God to see if my faith is strong enough to hold up against this sin, because God won't do that. But He will test you to prove your faith to you. I love the old J. Vernon McGee example. He talks about a train on a trestle in West Texas. And they built a new trestle. And then they brought a steam engine across that trestle. And before all the people of the towns gathered around, they ran that train back and forth over the trestle. Why? To prove the strength of the trestle. So that people would say, okay, it's safe to hop on that train and ride across that trestle. That's the proving of God in us. He proves your faith to you. He takes us through opposition, through resistance, and we come out the other side stronger, and we say, wow, I do have faith in God here. And that's exactly what He's looking for. So putting this together, we have the approval of our Father. Yes, He approves. He loves. He is, he is proud of you. But because we have been proven by God. Paul says, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We have come through some fiery trials and therefore God looks at us and says, pure gold, man. Pure gold. But get this. It's not just Paul and Silas who have been approved by God through fiery trials. It was Thessalonica. Or Thessalonica. You know, you're going to hear me say it both ways. Just get used to that. It's Thessalonica is the actual way to say it, but I've said Thessalonica my whole life, so it may just be Nica. (laughs) Anyway, the church there in Thessalonica had gone through and was going through their own fiery trials, just like Paul and Silas. This is a good thing, Paul would say. This is proving your approval. That the opposition to Christ and His church did not stall with the exit of Paul. No, it intensified on those believers left behind. That fledgling little group now had to deal with the opposition that was left after Paul and Silas skedaddled out of town. And the Thessalonians were thriving in the thick of it. This is what Timothy brought back as far as news. Yeah, they're being hammered, but wow, they are growing in faith. They are growing as a a fellowship. They had become apostolic. And that's what I mean by an apostle's approval. They had been proved through the fire and that made them more apostolic. Meaning? Meaning sent ones. An apostle is just someone who is sent. 
And we're told back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. And get this, centuries later, Thessalonica (laughs) became known, get this, as the Orthodox city. Thessalonica did. Why? Because it was a bulwark of Christianity. Back 2005, when we studied Revelation, we we talked about the tribulations facing the churches throughout the first century and, and what some of them came up against and how intense, and specifically Smyrna. Man, was just battered. And I remember at the time thinking, and I, and I think I taught this at the time, that what's interesting to me is in the first 283 years of the church's existence, man, God birthed the church into persecution, into opposition. How many of you would birth a child into something like that? And we look for the best hospital and the best doctors, and we want to make sure the room is secure and everything's just right, you know, for the coming of this child, God birthed his church into pain and tribulation and hardship and persecution. Why? Because it grew. As Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. It grows a church, it grows strength. And this apostle's approval, Thessalonica had it going through trials by fire. You may not feel like an apostle, but listen, every one of us in Jesus Christ have an apostolic calling. That is, we have all been sent. Some of us are just sent a few feet beyond our front door. Some of us are are sent great distances like the Lakenesses. And by the way, Jeremy and Sarah are here. Sarah's right back there. And you need to meet them. They're going to be here for the next few weeks before they head to Brazil on mission. Some are sent great distances. Some are sent just a few feet. It doesn't matter. You are sent if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are apostolic. And you have an apostle's approval. And that approval only increases as opposition increases. I want to point something else out here in verse 5. Note this. Paul says we never came with flattering speech. As you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. That's not the style of the believer. That is to flatter or to woo or to sell the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now this is a caveat of antagonism. This is how the adversary works. This is how the opposition works. Sometimes opposition is not what you would imagine. No, it's as smooth as butter. It's as sweet as honey. Opposition really is anything that will slow down the message of the gospel. And that message can be slowed down by someone who is just a flatterer. And God has no regard for flattery. He's just not into it. It's not His way. We are supposed to be encouragers, absolutely, but not flatterers. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that the encourager always speaks to advance the other person, whereas the flatterer speaks to advance himself or herself. 
the speech is for me, then I'm the flatterer. If it's for you, then I'm an encourager. The Bible talks a lot about this. Proverbs 26.28 says, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 29.5, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Romans 16.18, Paul says, Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Flattery. It's politicians. You know, always looking for an extra ounce of support, an extra buck. And again, talking with Jeremy Lakeness earlier, that, that, I love the attitude that Jeremy and Sarah have because it's not about, we're not out there trying to make money for ourselves. We're not out there trying to sell a product. No, we're just going on mission for Jesus and letting people know. And if you want to be involved, then be involved. And if you want to, I mean, at least pray for us. And that's the right attitude. It's not the attitude that's trying to flatter people into support. No, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, and that is Christ. And that's how it's done. The approved apostle is one who is tested and purified and approved by God because we need no man's approval. Verse 7. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother. And you might notice mother's italicized. I'll explain. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Paul enters a section of this part of the letter that I like to call a family portrait. And he begins with mom. And this is, if you're tracking these things, uh, we talked about a courier's confidence and an apostle's approval or the approved apostle. Now we come to number three, a mother's mildness. This is something opposition does. In Paul's life, it made Paul and it made Silas more motherly toward the churches that they planted. The opposition and the persecution made them more dear to Paul and more dear to Silas and external opposition can have that interesting effect in a church fellowship it has the effect of of, I don't know instead of hardness it tends to yield tenderness when we've gone through different things over the years especially where there's been outside opposition to the bridge being here as a fellowship it has made my heart more tender toward the fellowship more protective of the fellowship, wanting this infant uh, of 13 years ago to have time to grow, it, it, it did something to my heart to see when opposition came. Instead of anger, it, it, it develops affection. See, it's pouring out opposition to try and tear down, and all the while our hearts are just getting more tender for each other. A mother's mildness. God said in Isaiah 49, verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And there's this interesting picture, this motherly picture there of God Himself. We see it in Jesus. Matthew 23, 37, when He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks 
under her wings. That's a motherly attitude. And Jesus, knowing the opposition that was about to come upon Jerusalem, wanted nothing more than to tenderly gather His people in. To protect them from what was coming. So why is the word mother in italics here? That's interesting, because while this is a maternal mildness, a mother's mildness that Paul's getting at, the word here that's translated uh, where you see mother, it's, it's not mother, it's nurse. We see the phrase as a nursing mother, but the word, where's Andrea? The word is nurse. This is what we would call Andrea, we would call her atrophus in Greek. Yeah, she works as a trophus over at Island Hospital. That's what she does. That's because the word trophus is nurse. And so read literally, we would read, we prove to be gentle among you as a nurse. Tenderly cares, and this is why we add mother, for her own children. But this is unique. It's interesting to me. The word mother, mater, is not used here by Paul. He instead uses the word nurse, But then children are mentioned, so we assume, okay, it's a nurse of these children, so it must be a mother. What I think it is, what Paul is implying here, is the picture of a foster mother or an adoptive mother. And it's important to get this because an adoptive mother, understand I've watched this happen in my household, loves the adopted children every bit as much as the biological children but recognizes that the biological child, that the biological mother was someone else. And yet, the love of the foster mother, the adoptive mother, is the same as that of the biological mother. And it's, it's hard to describe until you've been in that place and you realize, wow, you really do have the same love for these as for these. And Paul is describing this because these are not his children. And yet he feels like an adoptive mother. He has that tenderness. Uh, An adoptive mother feeds, nourishes, cares for, not as a mother by flesh, but as a mother by spirit. And opposition has created this dynamic for Paul. And the idea behind it is, is giving of yourself. This is huge when it comes to the sharing of the gospel, especially in opposition. Understand, you cannot give the gospel without giving yourself. You have to give yourself when you give the gospel. Something God does. And we're not just teaching, again, a religious system. We're not just handing out tracts and a message. We must give ourselves or we're really not giving the heart of the gospel. That's what a mother does. Gives herself. Whether, again, adoptive or biological children is beside the point. A mother nurses and cares for and nurtures and raises the children. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. So there's the Gospel. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There's the giving of the Gospel. Jesus is the Gospel. We give the Gospel by doing as Jesus Himself did. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Brotherly love. Philadelphia. Fervently love, he says, agapao, one another from the heart. Move from brotherly into agape love. Agape love is unconditional. It is the nurse's love for her children. 
And speaking of a sincere love of the brethren, Paul then moves from a picture of a mother's mildness to a brother's business. A brother's business. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. A brother's business. Opposition to the gospel does this as well. It has a tendency to develop a holy work ethic. Seems that the more you know the gospel, the more you are divinely diligent with it. Those who do not know the gospel tend to be pretty lazy with it. Because they don't really know it and it doesn't have the impact on them personally. The more I'm into the gospel, the more I know the word of truth, the more I am diligent to want to bring and share the word of truth. And my brothers and my sisters are my business. You ever had another Christian say to you, that's none of your business? Oh, yeah, it is. Because you're my brother. You're my sister. Then I am concerned for you, and you ought to be concerned for me as well. We are in the family business, you might say. There's a sad reality, and I, I don't like it, but it's out there, about pastors. And maybe you've heard it, maybe you've even seen it. Pastors are lazy. Pastors just kind of use the position to hang out and not work very hard. I mean, I myself have said, I work very, very hard one day a week. And of course, I'm kidding. But I've seen this, and it's something that I've had to face and deal with, even in my own ministry, to, to say, look, this is, we are about the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. And so I have found myself at times in my ministry wanting to work against that, that old reputation that some pastors have raised for themselves of being flaky and, and lazy. Man, my family in Christ is worth every effort. Do you feel that way? My brothers and sisters are worth my rolling up my sleeves. I will not take advantage of you. I will not be a lazy Laodicean. And some are lazy with the truth. We've got to be careful about that. The Bible teaches a strong work ethic, especially where the gospel is concerned. This is not something to be set aside and to, to address lazily. The Bible talks about the sluggard. God uses the word many times in the Scriptures, especially in the Proverbs, and it's kind of fun because of what He says about the sluggard. Listen to this. Proverbs 26.14 As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. (laughs) The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and he's weary of bringing it to his mouth again. You ever been that tired? You reach into the chip bowl and you just go, I can't even get that to my mouth. See, God says that is the sluggard. And worse, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. And we are not to be that way. This is what I call the Laodicean Christian. This is the one who is neither hot nor cold, neither cowardly nor bold, just kind of right up the center. 
And God knows that the best antidote to lethargic Christianity is opposition. So if you don't want to be opposed, let's not be lazy in this place. I have felt and experienced that in my life. When I've gotten lazy, man, God turns up the heat. Time to get to work, Rick. I get it, Father. I get it. Paul understood this personally. Not that he was lazy, but he knew the effect of suffering unto diligence. And in fact, Jesus prophesied this over Paul. Do you remember on the Damascus Road? Actually, it was just after that. Jesus said to Ananias, who would go baptize Paul, Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Which means two things. It means not only would Paul experience suffering for the sake of Jesus, but Jesus was going to tell him ahead of time, you're going to suffer, buddy. This is going to be hard. You're going to face opposition and antagonism everywhere you go. I believe Jesus taught Paul that, told him that ahead, so that when it came, he wasn't surprised. When the suffering hit, he knew this was coming. And it's a good thing, because the suffering just provided all the more for diligence and for strength. I'm learning to stop praying for ease and comfort in my life. Devotion, uprightness, Paul uses that word, and blamelessness. If you want these things, you want to be a more devoted Christian, you want to be more blameless, you want to be upright in your life, these things are tested through fire. These things are developed in the heat. So a mother's mildness, a brother's business, and staying with the family portrait for just one more, and it's actually number five in our list, a father's forfeit. Verse 11. A father's forfeit. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Mother, brother, father. Paul is describing these these symbols or these images of someone who is working in the gospel and facing opposition. And now he talks about what I call a father's forfeit. Why? He uses three words to describe the fatherly attitude he has toward Thessalonica. Three words, exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Note those in verse 11. Exhorting is parakaleo. It's that word like paraklesis for the Holy Spirit coming alongside. So like a father, we came alongside you as children to to raise you up in this. Encouraging is paramutheo. And and that's a word that is spoken consolation. We were consoling you. We were caring for you. But it's the third word that to me is the most interesting. It's marturomai. Marturomai, which comes from the root Greek word martyreo, which is where we get our word martyr. And what Paul describes here, marturomai is giving witness. Even giving witness through suffering. Testimony through hardship, if you will. Our word martyr fits that very well. And a martyr is someone who puts his or her life on the line as a testimony to what they believe. And that's what Paul and Silas have done. There at Thessalonica. Man, their stay may have been short. It may have been brief. But the Thessalonian Christians watched these two suffer and watched them driven out of town for their faith and it impacted them greatly. The testimony of suffering that Paul had before them. 
Paul says, that's what we did with you. Like fathers, we exhorted, we encouraged, and we gave you a testimony of suffering. We implored you, it's translated. Some people wonder if Paul had the right to say some of the things that he said. To write some of the things that he wrote in his letters. Where does he get off? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the Gospel. Get this, the difference between a tutor and a father is a father is willing to forfeit his life for his children. And we see this father's forfeit in Paul, in Silas, in their example before the Thessalonians. We are willing to forfeit it all. And when opposition rises and antagonism increases, man, we will give our lives for you. How does that work for us? Listen, if you would be a martyr for the faith, don't be a martyr for yourself. If I'm in the center of it all, if I'm worried about my own skin, I will not be a witness for Jesus Christ. The martyr, the witness, is the one who puts themselves out there and we are never more like Jesus than when we sacrifice our interests or forfeit self for others. Remember what Jesus said? He who has seen Me has seen the Father. What did we see in Jesus but a life that was forfeit for the sake of His people? He forfeited life for death, glory for shame at Calvary on the cross that we might become children of God. It was all about us. It was not about Him. Man, if any human being in history had the right to make his life about Him, it was Jesus. And yet His life was about us. And we are like Jesus when we act, when we live that same way. Putting others before us, being willing to forfeit whatever it takes. Hey, listen, you have salvation. What can you give up that compares to what you have gained? So our willingness to forfeit for the sake of others, man, that is a godly trait. It's a great family portrait here. Mother, who's mild and tender and gentle. A brother who's willing to work for his brothers and sisters, a father who will forfeit anything for his children. And in all three of these, we see yet again a picture of the triune God. A mother. Well, that's like the ministry of the Holy Spirit. There is a mothering sense. I'm not talking gender, not getting into the male, is God male for you? No, you know, God presents as father, male. The son, male. Spirit of Christ, male, although the word spirit, pneuma, is in the female form. But let's not go there right now. The point is not the gender. The point is the behavior. And the behavior of the Holy Spirit is one of a mother comforting, helping, encouraging. Acts 9.31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So we see there a mother's gentleness in the Spirit of God. We see a brother's diligence in the Son of God. 
as the Hebrew writer says, chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting for God, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Who's the author of our salvation? Jesus. Wait a minute, He was perfected? I thought He was perfect. I'll answer that when we get to the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews 2.11 says, For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. All from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus became so like us that He Himself, the Hebrew writer says, calls us brothers. Jesus, my brother? Yeah. And He is the brother who is willing to roll up His sleeves. The ministry of the Son is a brother's diligence. The ministry of the Spirit, a mother's gentleness. And the ministry of the Father, a father's forfeiture. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said in John 6.40, This is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all at work in You, in Me, and through us to help us persevere even in opposition with expectancy for the return of Jesus.